0: This is Brian Lee Crowley, the managing director of the McDonald Gloria Institute, and this is Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Gloria Institute's premier public policy podcast. And I'm here with J. Michael Cole. Uh, Michael is a Taipei based senior fellow with the China Policy Institute at the University of Nottingham. Uh, He's also uh, a former CSIS officer uh, uh, here in Ottawa and a Canadian citizen who uh, has been living in Taiwan for a number of years and is extremely well informed about events and personalities and issues uh, touching on both Taiwan and China uh, and how those uh, two places affect Canada's interests. So Michael, welcome to Pod Bless Canada. Glad to be here. Uh, let's start with uh, that Canadian dimension that I just mentioned. Um, we could talk about uh, developments in the People's Republic of China, about uh, Xi Jinping, the uh, Chinese uh, president, and how he's uh, you know, trying to promote uh, China's interests internationally. We could talk about uh, Taiwan and its uh, rather uh, anxious and difficult relationship across the Taiwan Straits with the People's Republic. But in order to get a Canadian audience interested in this, we need to talk about why Canadians should care. Does this matter to Canadians? What do you say?
1: Well, from a purely Taiwan perspective, a uh, little known fact is that Uh, approximately 60,000 Canadian nationals currently live and work in Taiwan. Uh, And there are several thousand Canadians also living and working uh, in China. The two countries are major trade economic partners of Canada. Uh, So whatever happens in that part of the world is also bound to have an impact uh, on Canada, not just in terms of, of the economy, but also Canadian citizens and interests uh, in that part of the world. Uh, What we're seeing right now as well is a continuation and I would say intensification of of an ideological clash uh, in the making. Uh, What with uh, President Xi Jinping taking on uh, what looks increasingly like uh, the old emperors of China through centralization and accumulation of power. Uh, which is starting to make a lot of people, not only in the region, uh, but people worldwide, quite worried about the, the ramifications of that centralization of power uh, for global stability. Uh, it's the first time since the reemergence of China, if you will, uh, where we have a leader in Beijing who is openly committed to changing the global rules of the game. Uh, particularly in Asia, by displacing the Americans who have been a stabilizing presence since the conclusion of of World War II. So that creates a bunch of unknowns uh, about the future, and for Taiwan specifically, uh, at at its narrowest, Taiwan is 90 miles uh, away from the People's Republic of China, so uh, in military terms, uh, it would be the first obstacle to a china that finally has decided to become a regional uh, and quite possibly a global power as well that now presents a you know the Chinese system as an alternative to the liberal democratic way of life that we have all enjoyed and certainly Canadians have enjoyed uh, again for for nearly the past 60 70 years with a powerful country that you know the second the, the second-largest economy worldwide that is now committed to changing that global system and institutions. Uh, this is no longer just about Asia. This is about Europe. This is about North America, and we all need to start thinking about what it means for China becoming part of our of our everyday lives.
0: So, what you're saying is that that international order that Canada likes to say it is a keen supportive member of uh, free trade, you know, particularly in the context of our uh, discussions with the United States. But, uh, you know, we have presented ourselves as a, an advocate for multilateralism, for international organizations, for free trade, for free navigation, in the seas, etc. etc. Are you saying that Developments in China may represent a threat to that international order that Canadians have been such enthusiastic members of.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, freedom of the sea is, is certainly one. Uh, what with, with developments in, in the South China Sea, but even even you know matters like human rights, uh, freedom of expression. These are all things that that the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, I should say, uh, is now trying to to rewrite. Basically, arguing that. Uh, those notions are a Western colonial construct uh, of which Canada is, is definitely part uh, as a like-minded ally of the United States and, and, and European countries. Now China is proposing an alternative by saying that uh, economic development uh, and authoritarian rule are possibly better, uh, better functioning alternatives... Uh, to that whole system, of which Canada, with its traditions and, and all that, is certainly part. Uh, what it means for Canada's ability to engage other countries on matters of development, on matters of human rights, on matters of freedom of expression, is now increasingly being challenged by a gigantic country that proposes that these things are not or should not be priorities for countries like Canada, and certainly for countries that are targeted by Canada on, on, these, on these issues. So with that background, let's let's dig in
0: a little bit more to those developments that are taking place in China uh, and particularly how they affect both Taiwan and Canada, if we have time to discuss that further. Um, tell us what you think the most salient things are that we should know about what's happening in China.
1: Right. Well, um the most important development I think uh, we've seen in recent years is the realization that the whole premise of engaging China, allowing it to join the WTO, of investing in it, of, of you know working with it, allowing it to sell its products, uh, the notion that this would lead to liberalization or democratization in China, we're realizing now that that project has failed miserably. We were hoping to transform China to make it more like us, if you will, that might have been presumptuous, but now we're realizing this this did not work. What we succeeded in doing is allowing China to build up its its, its power to, to create its, a gigantic economy, uh, but without the hope for changes in how the CCP treats its own people, what we're realizing now, especially under President Xi Jinping, is that the country is actually moving in the opposite direction. So now you have a lot of people uh, in 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 the West, but particularly in, in the United States, who are left scratching their heads and they're like, our project failed miserably. And we seem to have created a monster that is now turning all that that consolidated power against us in, in, in a way that's not trying to change us. Or at least challenge us as, as, uh, as a leader of, of, of the global system um, and that realization is something that's been in the making uh, but in, in recent months particularly with uh, the likelihood that Xi Jinping is turning into a, a quasi uh, you know is certainly showing signs of becoming a, a dictator uh, this is something that was uh, entirely unexpected again with the belief that China was actually moving in the opposite direction uh, with uh, with Dong Xiaoping, they had actually uh, implemented rules where there would be term limits for the president, uh, limited to two five year terms. Now they're dispensing with those uh, with those rules that had been implemented to prevent the reemergence of a dictator of the type uh, of the Mao Zedong type, whose policies led to you know tremendous human suffering in China and uh, and in the region as well. Uh, so this is the this is the uh, I would say the most important development it's this it's this awakening to the fact that now we're dealing with a China that we cannot control, uh, or that the means by which we were hoping to control it are are failing altogether. So we need to rethink as a, a you know, global community uh, how to engage China. We cannot afford not to engage it. Uh, that would be even even worse. But now we need to rethink the the best way to integrate China into the global community, but also at the same time find ways to make sure that it does not change who we are and and the the proud liberal democratic systems that define us as as, uh, Western civilization.
0: Well, that's just exactly where I wanted to go, because I think if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is our strategy to change China has failed, but their strategy to change us is succeeding.
1: Is that fair? There are certainly uh, emerging signs that China has turned the tables. Uh, and is trying to change us. And um, in many ways, i would I would argue that it is succeeding, um, partly because uh, it's been quite um, well, the CCP has been quite careful in uh, in not appearing, you know being too obvious in its efforts to change us. Uh, they're they're not screaming, we want to turn the West into something else, but they've been very, uh, very good at operating uh, behind the scenes in gray zones of our our democratic systems and legal systems uh, and using their extremely attractive economic might uh, to co-opt individuals or to compel governments and, and businesses and individuals uh, to look the other way when China was doing things that we disagreed with. But for fear of losing our access to China, and that certainly applies even to academics, we choose to remain silent on things uh, when China does things either to its own citizens or increasingly to citizens of other countries. Uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, Tibet certainly come as, as, uh, as vivid examples. Uh, we just we just remain silent on these things. And, and that self-imposed censorship, uh, that willingness to look the other way, that willingness to uh, to back off whenever China expresses displeasure at our own policy choices, uh, is transforming who we are. And that is very much led by uh, big businesses as well who have influence with their, with their own governments, but they are keen on enriching themselves in China and there's a lot of money to be made in China. Uh, and we're allowing that process to to transform us and now little by little uh there are groups of people in around in democracies around the world who are realizing that this is probably going too far now it's endangering our very way of life uh, and we need to find ways to push back and protect ourselves against that uh, those efforts
0: yeah i thought a, an interesting example happened a few years ago when i think the uh, chinese foreign minister was visiting in ottawa and uh Was with uh, our then foreign minister, Stéphane Dion, in a press conference. And uh, one of the journalists asked a question about uh, human rights in China. And uh, she got a a pretty vigorous dressing down from the uh, Chinese foreign minister saying, How dare you ask me a question about? human rights. Is that the sort of thing that you have in mind?
1: Well, that was, yeah, we were talking about the incident with, with Wang Yi when he visited the Ottawa. And, uh, well, that was, that was actually an example of, of China or a Chinese official being probably a little too blunt uh, in showing, uh, expressing his displeasure. And that actually created a backlash because a lot of people realize that, whoa, he's in Ottawa and he's lecturing us on how our journalists are supposed to be, um, to be behaving. Um, Where the Chinese have been more successful in is is by being a little more insidious, uh, indirectly punishing reporters or academics for looking into things that Beijing does not want us to look into. Uh, And normally that is through denial of access. Uh, Or what we're seeing increasingly as well is what we call lawfare. Uh, It's Chinese officials or companies that will target journalists and academics or publishers. Uh, to uh, prevent them making certain information available to the public uh, because there are certain things that they're trying to, to mask. That would be quite uh, problematic if the public at large uh, became aware of, of certain connections to Chinese intelligence and you know, that front work apparatus. Uh, so again, uh, the, the very blunt, direct uh, efforts by Chinese to silence us in the, and silence us in the West, uh, tend to backfire. And, and where the Chinese have been largely successful is, is when they're not that obvious in their in their efforts. Uh, and they benefit from public at large in the West not knowing very much what the CCP is all about, what its, its ideology is. Uh, China also benefits from the fact that the Russians tend to be a little more uh, obvious in their, in, their, in their threats to our, our way of life. Uh, when I interact with uh, officials in Europe, for example, and try to raise the issue of, of Chinese influence, um, I get mostly blank stares or they tell me, well, the Russians are already doing that to us. And I, my response is always, absolutely, the Russians are doing that to us. But you should also be aware that the Chinese are doing that to your country as well. Uh, but they're actually a lot better at it because they're, they're, they're finding ways, much more insidious ways. Uh, to, to transform your society.
0: Now, you've talked about uh, the Chinese being rather subtle and insidious in their approach to uh, um, Western societies and bringing pressure to bear on individuals and organizations that um, uh, uh, Beijing might consider to be uh, not seeing things from the Chinese point of view. Uh, but... Um, would I be right in thinking that uh, the sort of expansionist view of Chinese power that uh, Xi Jinping has uh, isn't limited to Chinese who live within the Chinese mainland, but they're now starting to think of overseas Chinese communities as, in fact, representing China?
1: Mm. Well, the, the Chinese have, a and this is something else that's quite challenging to uh, to us Westerners, is that our definition of the international system is 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 Westphalian. We have sovereign states with, with finite uh, borders, and it's based on the notions of of citizenship. Um, whereas China's approach is what we should we could term civilizational, uh, in that borders do not necessarily matter as much as they do to us. Uh, and certainly their understanding is that anyone who is of Chinese heritage or ethnically Chinese, according to, to Beijing's definition, has a responsibility to the motherland. And that is the reason why we have uh, several instances where other Chinese students uh, overseas and in, in university, uh, Chinese diaspora, or even in some instances... Uh, Government officials of a Chinese background uh, in countries like New Zealand, Australia, and even here in Canada, uh, who are, again, I maintain, nationals of the country which they're serving, but oftentimes there are issues of allegiance. And some of them have made uh, speeches in recent years where there was reason to, to doubt whether their first allegion, uh, allegiance lies with the Canadian government uh, or the New Zealand government or the Australian government. Uh, And that they are, in fact, serving the interests of the People's Republic of China. And those are appointed or elected officials. So there is the the notion out there that anyone who is of Chinese background has a responsibility to do whatever he or she can to push the PRC's agenda uh, globally. And that explains why we've had so many incidents in in university campuses uh, in the West as well, where you would have Han Chinese ganging up on uh, Uyghur students or Taiwanese students, uh, oftentimes at the encouragement of the local Chinese consulate or embassy that has infiltrated different schools and universities worldwide. Uh, And again, on our own turf, uh, preventing us from inviting certain individuals like Dalai Lama or Anastasia Lin, as happened a few years ago in the UK, um, because it would supposedly anger Beijing or even the small body of chinese students but i mean they can do these things inside their own their own country but now what we're seeing is that increasingly they're doing that applying that model in western democracies where we again have a long tradition we are proud in and are allowing different individuals with different opinions and different backgrounds to participate in that discourse and the openness that defines us. Now we have a large country that is trying to attack that very openness that defines who we are. and That's that's quite problematic.
0: Now, uh, it seems to me that uh, Dick Fadden, who uh, was the head of uh, CSIS, which is uh, Canada's uh, intelligence and counterintelligence uh, agency, uh, uh, got in some trouble by suggesting that uh, there might be Uh, you know, elected officials of uh, Chinese extraction here in Canada who uh, were, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, perhaps uh, acting in the interests of Beijing rather than the interests of Canada. Um, He was pilloried uh, and accused of racism and all sorts of things.
1: Was that uh, reaction unjustified? Um, Well, I... I I personally think that reaction was was certainly unjustified, especially coming from someone whose job it was to track uh, various threats to to Canadian security. Uh, That's been a weapon that uh, the Chinese or the CCP uh, have been using for many years. Either one is anti-China, either one is racist and targeting every single Chinese uh, in the Chinese diaspora, or another one that we hear uh, oftentimes is of adding a Cold War mentality. So you have these blanket accusations against individuals uh, who are pointing to, you know, real serious issues that, that threaten our societies and also threaten uh, minorities from China who have created new lives for themselves in, in Western countries. Um, these blanket accusations, unfortunately, tend to succeed again because they rely on, on lack of awareness and lack of knowledge about what is actually going on in China. And about the actual threat that, that, that the People's Republic of China now uh, poses against our own society.
0: But my understanding is that the, the government in Beijing has actually published documents that include lists of Canadian officials who they say they have been essentially grooming to help represent uh, Chinese interests. So we, we now have this information from the Chinese. Right.
1: Well, another thing that's quite fascinating about China is that for a country that is supposedly so, uh, you know, against open information, if one knows where to look and if one reads Chinese, there is a lot of information available on the Internet. Uh, it's just like that most people and certainly ordinary people cannot be bothered to look for that information or would not even know where to start. Uh, but there are academics and journalists out there uh, whose job it is to you know, to go through to sift that information and find interesting bits that are quite, quite revealing. What we're seeing now, and this is something that that happened to me personally, is that when we dig up that information and make it public in in English language, for example, uh, individuals or agencies in China involved or named in those reports will then increasingly rely upon the threat of lawsuits to silence us. And the Chinese are particularly good at making information disappear Once they realized that the information was there to begin with, uh, and they have uh, now sought to have articles deleted, not only in China, which happens all the time, uh, but in publications in the West as well. Uh, And that's why it's very important for, for us to also be willing to face that challenge and make the Chinese understand that in our in the Western world, our tradition is not to make information disappear, but quite the opposite. We celebrate the fact that we have open societies that embrace revealing. And that's why we have whistleblowers and whatnot. Uh, so that's really a, a very, very, very uh, interesting clash that we're seeing right now.
0: Now, uh, you know, lest, uh, some of our listeners think that uh, we're engaging in a little bit of uh, paranoia here. Um, can you talk a little bit about the experience of people in Australia, New Zealand and uh, elsewhere uh, in terms of Chinese attempts to influence domestic
1: policy and politics? Well, that, that's, that's always a danger as well, uh, whether it's counter-terrorism or now it's you know, counter, counter-influence, mm-hmm. counter-espionage. Is we do not we want to make sure again as, uh, as multicultural societies that you know we very much embrace and rely on the different peoples you who know, make make up you know what, what Australia or, or New Zealand or Canada is or certainly the United States as well uh, we don't want to engage in a, in a witch hunt uh, we need to make it very clear and our laws need to reflect that that we are not targeting the Chinese. Uh, and we want to refrain from saying that China is the enemy. Mm-hmm. Our problem right now is the current iteration of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the policies that it has employed to influence uh, or co-opt uh, individuals and, and governments and organizations worldwide, oftentimes relying on uh, groups of, of Chinese who are willing to engage in those activities, whether they're government Uh, or NGOs or or civil organizations uh, towing uh, Beijing's line, if you will. Um, It's been a challenge because uh, overseas Chinese communities in those countries where we're starting to identify and make public uh, Chinese influence operations, uh, they now feel isolated. They're certainly afraid that uh, governments would overreach and target every single one of them. Uh, so it's as responsible, mature democracies. I, I emphasize the need uh, for us to to you know strike a proper balance and make sure that our laws are, are well calibrated, that our journalists and academics who look into these things also not contribute to a sense of of, of paranoia that then would a change who we are again. And B, alienate individuals who are, you know, just as you and I, contributing to the well-being of their, of their societies. Uh, but for most, uh, countries, this is, this is all new. Uh, the laws are not there yet. And oftentimes the, the Chinese organizations that are trying to influence us, uh, will exploit the gray zones or gray areas in our, in our democratic and legal systems. Uh, that makes it very difficult for us to identify what they're actually up to until we realize that it succeeded in changing who we are or co-opting individuals.
0: Well, in fact, my understanding is that um, uh, it's not um, just Chinese, uh, people of Chinese extraction, but indeed people non-Chinese in Australia, for example, who have been caught in effect in a conflict of interest where they claim to be representing uh, the interests of Australia, but in fact, were uh, under the influence of uh, Chinese authorities trying to influence domestic politics.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, primarily co-optation. And normally, uh, the Chinese have been uh, very good at promising lucrative uh, positions, either as advisors or board members. In Chinese companies, upon a government official or business leader retiring. Uh, and again, that brings me back to the gray zone. Uh, oftentimes, what is offered and what happens is not illegal uh, as per our current legal system, but uh, uh, normally would be quite unethical. And that certainly raises questions about the policy decisions that those officials made while still in office. Uh, knowing that uh, something lucrative was offered them by, by China. Uh, but again, how, how do we begin to address that challenge using the current laws that, that we have? How do we have our law enforcement agencies or intelligence agencies look at these things? And it, again, the, the fact that it's oftentimes not illegal but simply unethical makes it easier for, for the CCP or, or for China to say, well, they did not break any laws. So therefore you must be anti-Chinese because we did not do anything illegal. These individuals did not do anything illegal, so why are you targeting us? Um, and they've been very good at exploiting that, that gray zone in our, in our systems.
0: Mm. So let's come back to Taiwan for a minute. Um, if places like Australia and New Zealand and Canada and Germany are feeling the uh, pressure from the People's Republic of China uh, in order to tow the Chinese line, pressure must be enormously greater on Taiwan, which China considers to be a, a renegade province. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what's going on in Taiwan and its relationship with China.
1: Well, actually, everything that the Western world is going through right now, Taiwan has been experiencing for for years, if not decades, uh, from infiltration, to influence operations, to co-optations, to, to threats, to censorship, uh, you name it. Taiwan has been uh, going through this for, for quite a while and, and you know, come up with, with means of addressing those those different challenges. Uh, what we're experiencing in Taiwan is absolutely the People's Republic of China claims that Taiwan uh, has always belonged to China. It now needs to be recuperated uh, if you will, or annexed uh, to complete the rejuvenation of, of, of the Chinese nation uh, and to undo uh, wrongs, so Beijing claims, that, that were done to China uh, in previous centuries and during the, the so-called century of, of humiliation. Uh, the challenge that, uh, the principal challenge that Beijing faces when it comes to Taiwan is that Taiwan democratized uh, in the 1980s and is very much influenced by the liberal democratic ideals uh, that, that come from the West and that, and that you know, became part of Taiwan through decades of Taiwanese coming to the West, uh, working for a while, building new lives, obtaining PhDs, starting businesses, and then going back to Taiwan. And with that, they brought uh, all these ideals and, and whatnot. Taiwan is certainly, uh, ironically, even though it's, it's not Recognized as an official country, Taiwan is much more Westphalian and its self definition than, than, than China is. So there's that, that contradiction as well in the two systems. Uh, and uh, with the new, you know, the older people in Taiwan who were born in China and therefore had a uh, emotional attachment to, you know, quote unquote, the mainland uh, after 1949 when, when the nationalists were defeated by the communists in China. Uh, these individuals are, are retiring, a lot, a lot of them are dying, and their offspring were all born in Taiwan. And the fact that you were born in Taiwan uh, has a substantial impact on, on one's self-definition. So what we have seen uh, in recent decades, uh, in addition to democratization, is that loss of a sense of belonging... Uh, or familiarity with with China. For young Taiwanese today, China is, there's no doubt in their minds that China is a sovereign country. It's a place where opportunities exist for education, for for business and and whatnot. They may share the same language. They may share similar cultural elements. But in their minds, it's it's very clear that Taiwan is a separate entity. So now we have arrived at a point where Uh, The great, great, great majority of people in Taiwan, regardless of whether they vote for a party that is a bit friendlier to Beijing, uh, a great majority of them are are not interested in becoming part of the People's Republic of China. They want to maintain their way of life. Uh, They like the way things are. They're certainly not, uh, they're certainly amenable to exchanges with China. They certainly do not deny the existence of the People's Republic of China. Uh, but they're not interested in, in being part of it. And the examples that we've seen with the uh, recuperation of Hong Kong in 1997 uh, on their one country, two systems, uh, where Beijing had allegedly committed to giving Hong Kong a certain level of of, uh, of independence, or at least self-rule, uh, has been, uh, you know, according to, to many uh, perspectives, has been a failure for, for the, the people of Hong Kong. Uh, we've seen a, an erosion of freedoms. We've seen infiltration of academic circles. Uh, media is, is now overwhelmingly pro-Beijing, uh, and candidates in, in elections have been you know, denied participation in government because they were more pro-localization, pro-democracy. Universal suffrage that had been promised never materialized, and now it's quite evident that it never will. Uh, as long as the CCP maintains its, its tight grip on uh, on Hong Kong. So for Taiwanese who are far more familiar with Hong Kong society than with China, uh, what they're seeing happening in Hong Kong now is certainly not something that they desire for themselves. So, um, But at the same time, we have uh, China that is becoming uh, extremely powerful at a time when, when Taiwanese economy has been stagnating for about 15 years. It's a country of 23 million people. Versus a country of 1.4 billion people uh, Taiwan has only 21 official diplomatic allies whereby China is is you know by by the month gaining new allies and becoming an indispensable uh, player in, within the international community so it's a, it's an immense challenge for Taiwan to maintain its way of life and to uh, make sure that that Chinese designs upon it uh, do not result in, in the loss of, of their sovereignty.
0: Okay, we've only got a couple of minutes left, Michael. So um, let's talk about let's try and draw the all of these diverse threads together and bring it back again to Canada. So um, Canada looks at China and sees this enormously large economy. Uh, they want to trade with it, and indeed we trade with all kinds of regimes that we disagree with, and uh, that's been true for many many years. Um, so we want to engage with China. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're saying is that um, China may want to exact a price from us for engaging with them that is higher than we should be willing to pay. Uh, And certainly uh, they may be threatening Taiwan with a far higher price than that again. Um, So tell me and tell the listeners to this podcast, what should Canada do? How should we respond to the rise of China in a way that allows us to realize the benefits of uh, you know, collab- of connecting with China, uh, but without Canada losing uh, its own character? Right. Well,
1: absolutely there's 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 no doubt whatsoever that that we cannot afford to not engage China. Uh, it will it is becoming, it has become and will be. Uh, for the foreseeable future, an indispensable economic partner and a major player on on the global scene. Um, That being said, um, I think we need to realize, uh, and this may be happening slowly, uh, that however indispensable China is, uh, China needs us as much as we need it. Uh, China does not try to acquire businesses in Canada, or invest in Canada, or even sign an FTA in Canada, uh, out of goodwill. Uh, This is not charity on Beijing's part. Uh, It engages us uh, because it wants certain things that we have to offer. When it comes to Canada, uh, it's certainly high-tech companies, but even more than that, it's natural resources. Uh, So knowing that uh, it should give us the ammunition to engage China, but also to tell it that we have our own red lines as well. Uh, that the price that we are willing to pay for engagement uh, has its limits. And losing who we are, undermining our own liberal democratic way of life as a price to pay is too high for Canadian society uh, and is too high for democracies worldwide. Uh, what I hope we're going to start seeing with that emerging you know, awakening to what China is, is means and, and means for us. Uh, is that we're going to see major economies and major democracies start working a little better together uh, in first seeking to understand what China is up to and be coming up with, with strategies, hopefully by working together, creating our own united front, if you will, uh, and as a group, as a coalition of democracies, telling China we will work together, but there are things that we're not willing. Uh, to let it happen to to ourselves, and I think that's 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 crucial for Canada uh, to have that uh, that willingness to push back when necessary. Because if we don't push back, China will continue to exact a very high price for for our engagement, and Beijing would be re- would be stupid if it did not continue trying that. Because so far it has worked. We have given, 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 given. We need to stop doing that.
0: Well, that's a good place to stop, I think, because the next time uh, that. Uh we do a podcast with you Michael, we'll talk about uh, what that coalition of uh, countries that might be constituted in response to the rise of China, how that coalition of countries should behave and what they should be seeking and how they should be working together. But that's a conversation for another time. Let me thank uh, Michael Cole, a senior fellow with the China Policy Institute at the University of Nottingham, a Canadian living in Taipei, has been our guest on Pod Bless Canada. Uh, I'm Brian Lee Crowley, the Managing Director of the McDonald Laurie Institute. Thank you so much for listening and Pod Bless Canada.